Therefore, let's make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the same example of disobedience, because God's word is living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to the point that it separates the soul from the spirit and the joints from the marrow. It's able to judge the heart's thoughts and intentions. No creature is hidden from it, but rather everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of the one to whom we have to give an answer. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. And we are in the week of unclobbering, which is to say we have come to the point in this series, Not Your Abomination, where we're digging into those <laughs> clobber texts, um, or some scholars call them fragment texts, these handful of phrases and um, passages that are taken out of context and used to harm LGBTQ people. So we're going with the heavy hitters today. I want to start again today with another trigger warning. Um, we had one last week. Last week was a really difficult um, set of topics. And the trigger warning for these passages is really related to understanding their content a little differently. That the vast majority of these passages are not talking, well, none of these passages are talking about queerness um, and its beauty and, um, and consenting relationships between adults. And a lot of the scholarship uh, says that these are actually talking about instances of sexual abuse, exploitation, and in particular, sexual abuse of children. So note that that is going to be um, a theme throughout the sermon today. And again, um, if that means that today you just want to peace out, totally fine. Otherwise, you may just want to resource yourself. Remember that God gave you your body as an incredible resource. You, beginning with your breath, that very breath of God that we talked about a few weeks ago with the creation story. And ground yourself in your senses. Remember where you are and don't hesitate to reach out to community for support. Engage with that chat so that you know you're not alone in working through all of this material with us together. So um, these texts, um, there's a lot of scholarship out there around them. We're going to be talking uh, mainly about five texts. Yes, that's right, five texts. There are a couple others thrown in for bonus, but um, mainly we're talking about five texts that are taken, these little snippets, one verse, two verses, one phrase, um, that are taken um, out of their, their broad context to, uh, to be used against LGBTQ people within a church setting. Now, in the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about these bigger stories and narratives, the narrative cr of creation, the narrative of the sin and destruction of Sodom. Um, but these are just these little pieces. And it's, it's going to be important for us to contextualize all of it. Um, as we heard in our scripture reading today, Scripture is, is living, and it is incisive, and it is, it is bold and moving and challenges us, brings things um, into our awareness that were not there before. But it really can't do that very well when we take words or phrases or individual sentences out and import our own new meaning on the text. So a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is what the broader context for all of these verses is that really changes the way we read those individual words, phrases, or verses. 
Now, some of you are going to want to go deeper than we can go today, and I will share with you three of the books that I used in preparation for our work. Um, we'll drop these in comments, no worries. One is The Bible's Yes to Same-Sex Marriage. One is the book Unclobber. And uh, this is a favorite of Cameron's, What the Bible Really Says About Homosexuality. Though, make sure you get the one by this person, Daniel Helminiak. Helminiak? Um, there are other ones titled this that are not as fun. So if you want to go further and do some of your own research, I'm sure that a few people here with us today have also read others that they might recommend. And so please throw those in the chat. What are your go-to resources? Or what are the things that you've heard recommended? But let's dig into it. Now, I promised you I would go verse by verse, and I'm going to do that, but we're actually not going to do that quite till the very end, because it turns out there are a lot of contextual themes in these verses. Some of them are grouped in like really similar parts of the Bible, even just a couple chapters apart, and so understanding a few broad ideas that scholars have established um, in reading these texts will help us navigate all of the arguments for each of them. Now, coming back to context, which we've heard is very important. We've been talking about this a lot, this series. Um, we have this problem of reading moder modern meanings of words backwards into history, where the history would have no concept of that word. So there's a joke um, that is quoted in the Bible's Yes to Same-Sex Marriage that uh, I had never heard before, but made me chuckle. And it goes like this. What brand of car did the early church prefer? The answer is Hondas, because as it says in Acts 15:25, it seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you. Now, <laughs> this is obviously a silly dad joke, but it's surprisingly relevant when you come up with words uh, that we are trying to understand in the text and we import all of our own modern meetings. So even uh, if we were to encounter terms and ideas about sexuality, there was no ancient context for a consenting, queer, committed relationship that is romantic and sexual. That's just not something they had. So in, in our modern day, we have, we have cars. We have romantic and sexual relationships that aren't based on um, the same social norms. And for us to import those meanings backward is, a, is, is silly, as exposed with that joke. Additionally, there are contexts from that time, words and ideas that make no sense to us now. We will encounter a word that Paul made up. I'm going to try and pronounce it. It's called, it says, arsenokoitai. I'm sure I've heard other people try and pronounce it, but I've been mostly reading it lately. Um, but it's a word Paul made up. I mean, to be fair, all words are made up. But uh, we have, in our modern reading, interpreted that as homosexual. Now, homosexual is a crappy word, 
And like, I know very few uh, queer people who identify with that word. Um, homo is much catchier. And uh, we've got a lot of other better, less degrading words that we have given ourselves. But st either way, that implies in our modern context an identity. It implies an orientation. It potentially implies relationship, both sexual and romantic, and it could imply marriage. All of these in the context of the Bible are Honda Accords. They, they don't exist, they wouldn't make any sense, no one had any concepts about sexual orientation, nobody had a framework, a cultural framework, for understanding a sexual or romantic relationship between two consenting adults based on love and attraction that uh, wasn't based on the other context for marriage or sex in the ancient world. We are talking about something else, something that the Bible doesn't have words for, that the Bible doesn't have reference to. And so when we read it with our modern lenses and we refuse to ground ourselves in the context of the Bible, we can draw meanings that are totally weird. Like that the, that the early disciples drove a Honda Accord to get around. Because the conclusions that we draw then about consenting adults in queer relationships are not only not what they're talking about, but it would just sound like word salad to Paul and to other authors of biblical texts. They wouldn't know what we meant. In addition to the ancient culture around sex and marriage being really different, we also have modern queer phobia that we're importing onto the text, and, uh, and we are then shaping the text in further different ways to accommodate modern views of anti-gayness. So it's really important to note that the word homosexual was introduced into translations of, of scripture into English in the year 1946. It literally hasn't even been around for a century, and we've had these texts for 2,000 years. During that translation of the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, which, to be fair, got a lot of other things really right, there was a team at Yale of 22 men, and they made this decision about how to translate the word homosexual into 1 Corinthians. This was the first time in all of history, in any language, anywhere in the wor world, that the idea of a homosexual is appearing in any translation of the Bible. And it combined two words, and it tried to make sense of something. Uh, but those two, that combination really flattened the context of the original scripture and imported a ton of modern meaning that doesn't make any sense in that context. So that was in 1946. And by the 1990s, there were six passages that had that translation of homosexual. Some of those parts, these are not in the big five, we're not even deigning to interact with them because more modern translations have fixed it already um, because some of them are just like outright inappropriate. So in Deuteronomy 23 and in, in 1 Kings 14, we have references that are very explicitly about temple prostitutes. 
Um, in Deuteronomy, it's a reference to female temple prostitutes. In 1 Kings, it's a reference for male temple prostitutes. And we'll get into temple prostitution and what that meant and why I'm using the word prostitution and not sex work. Um, but it, it is not, uh, first of all, it's clearly not just about being gay. Second of all, um, it's very specific practice that those translators knew better about. That like, we know exactly what they're talking about and it's not anything having to do with homosexuality. It often included um, sexual contact between people of the same assigned sex. But like, burying the lead because like, temple prostitution was about a lot of other things that were really problematic that the scripture actually cared about rather than same sex sexual contact. The other ones though, the other ones that feel a little murkier, the other ones that ha are, have become, um, you know, the, the big five that we're going to talk about today, they have a long, 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 long history of being translated very differently. So scholar Ed Oxford was curious about this <laughs> because he was like, oh, the word homosexual didn't show up until 1946, so what were we saying before that? So he, he, went <laughs> he gathered as many like old, old Bibles and Bible manuscripts as he could find um, across Europe, starting with like the Reformation, which is about 500 years ago, up through 1946, and was curious, like what are all these European translations saying about these words? And so I have uh, a quote from an interview with Ed Oxford about what he discovered. In the English, where it says, man shall not lie with man, for it is an abomination. The German version says, man shall not lie with young boys as he does with a woman, for it is a, an abomination. I said, what? Are you sure? He said, yes. Then when we went to Leviticus 20, 13, same thing, young boys. So we went to 1 Corinthians to see how they translated arsenokotai, original Greek word, and instead of homosexuals, it said, boy molesters will not inherit the kingdom of God. I then grabbed my facsimile copy of Martin Luther's original German translation from 1534. My friend is reading through it for me, and he says, Ed, this says the same thing. They use the word, oh no, kinbashander, nabinshander, nabin is a boy, shander is molester. This word, boy molesters, for the most part carried through the next several centuries of German Bible translation. Nabinbanshander is also in 1 Timothy 1.10. So the interesting thing is, I asked if they had ever changed the word arsenokinoi to homosexual in modern translations. So my friend found it and told me, the first time homosexual appears in a German translation is 1983. To me, that was a little suspect because of what was happening in culture in the 1970s. 
Thank you to Cameron for reading that uh, unexpectedly. Uh, I apologize for not remembering how many foreign words were in that. So um, what we have here, though, is an understanding that it actually was that English translation from the United States that introduced this idea to the rest of the world. And in fact, it turns out that that 1983 version of the German Bible, the first to insert any sort of understanding of homosexuality as we would, um, as we would understand it, was paid for by Biblica, which is the American company who owns the NIV. So essentially, it was American companies and American queer phobia exported throughout the world through these corporate interests. Ed Oxford's further research brought him into contact with other um, translations as well. He had an, a 1674 Swedish version and an 1830 Norwegian version of the text, both translated as boy abusers. This is uh, a, a big difference from how we would understand what queer sexuality is today. And again, uh, we, we kind of talked about this last week, but there are a lot of people who are, there is a pattern in our culture, a sin among God's people, where victims are cast as abusers over and over and over again. And so a marginalized group, um, a sexual minority, queer people, are cast culturally in the cultural mythology as abusers. And so there is already this equation uh, through this queer phobic interpretation and translation of scripture, th this horrible equating of beautiful adult queer sexuality with abuse. This is not honoring to the text. This is us bringing our sin and our dysfunction to the scripture, to the word of God. There were lots of practices in the ancient world that were, were horrific, were terribly abusive, um, sexually and uh, particularly with children. There were ways that um, cult cultic worship and I don't use the word cult in like any particular way. Um, that, that's a term that scholars use to talk about just different sects of religions. Um, but that cult worship around the ancient world had different practices. Some of it was really sexually exploitative. And, uh, and so we get here into temple prostitution. Now, Temple prostitution was a practice that um, a lot of cultures around um, Judaism and early Christianity had, um, where there were, you would go to a temple of some other god, not Yahweh, and you could pay money to have sex with someone, and the money would go to the temple. The rules around that sex were really loosey-goosey, and so again, you may have had um, sexual contact between people uh, of the same assigned sex. And it was also a deeply exploitive situation. This was not adults saying, I am making a choice to go into sex work. This was usually children um, sort of conscripted into the temple or offered up to the temple by their parents to live in the temple and serve 
as temple, um, as temple prostitutes, as uh, bodies made available to the highest bidder so that the temple could earn money. And this is extremely screwed up, really horrific. And so the text is saying, we don't do that. That may be a practice that you see elsewhere, but we don't do that. So it's talking about the abuse of children here, particularly the abuse of boys. Now, all throughout the ancient world, there were also really troubling relationships uh, of abuse between young boys and adult men. And again, the text is saying, we don't do that. You may see that around. That is not of the God Yahweh. That is not what we do. And, and so there are four biblical verses that Ed Oxford identified that fit re really tightly into this understanding of the tradition it calling it child abuse. And there's a huge irony to this because a lot of the people who are queer haters will appeal to tradition will basically say, well, 2,000 years of church history can't be wrong, and we don't want to conform to the ways of the world now just because modern people want to um, affirm homosexuality. When actually the biblical tradition for almost 2,000 years was using and interpreting these scriptures to condemn uh, the abuse of children, the sexual domination of children. So, sure, Let's lean on biblical tradition here. Let's lean on the church's traditional interpretation. It's not what y'all are talking about. So all of these texts, all five of the ones that we're going to talk about today, are actually um, passages that refer to sexual abuse and exploitation at some level, not consenting relationships between queer adults. Again, a theme from last week with um, the sin and destruction of Sodom. That is not about a healthy sexuality. That is about sexual domination and violence. And so we see a pattern of what the Bible truly is condemning. And it's not gay love. It's sexual domination, exploitation of the vulnerable, particularly of children. But there are other trains of thought here as well, other critiques um, and nuances that scholars have brought to our attention. One of those is about the idea of sex being natural or unnatural. Now, one of the things that we really need to acknowledge about scripture is that even though I think you can absolutely make a case that there's no real argument in scripture against uh, queerness, scripture is pretty misogynist. And it's hard to unpack all of that. I think that's one of those things that personally for me, we just have to acknowledge is woven throughout the text as a sin, as a collective sin of humanity that we, haven't, we hadn't been able to root out in our writing of this text and that we need to work with God to cleanse ourselves of. But acknowledging that, we have this other idea then of what kind of sex is natural. And it has a lot to do with the idea of women as objects of sex and property. Now, in these passages, there's a huge emphasis on men having sex with men or boys. It's always about the sexual agency of men. There's really a lot of times not any reference at all to women. And there are a few things to know about the ancient cultural context of marriage and sexuality. So first of all, 
marriage was primarily economic, sex was primarily for procreation, and procreation was also primarily economic. So we're talking about money and property here. And this is, this is just sex between a man and a woman in the ancient world. Um, so when you encounter those ideas about marriage and sexuality being about um, money and property and social structure combined with this like really deeply ingrained misogyny, you get the following themes um, in the ancient world. Women were property. Uh, women were traded among families to build marriage for uh, economic and social reasons. The sex uh, that was had within marriage was for procreative purposes with the goal of birthing male heirs to continue the family line or create a clear line of property succession. That is, who gets my stuff when I die? Now, that meant that women's sexuality was really heavily policed, not for the purity and anti-sex reasons that we claim today, but to ensure that they were only having sex with their husbands so that they would only produce legitimate heirs. There were no DNA paternity tests back then, so instead they would do virgin tests um, where they would try and make sure that uh, a very young woman who was getting married had not had sex with someone else and might not be, you know, wouldn't be carrying someone else's baby. And then they would just really pay a lot of attention to making sure she didn't sleep with anyone else so that any babies that came out of her were legitimate heirs to the man that she married. Culturally, men were actually engaged in extramarital sex a lot, usually with sex workers or concubines, and it wasn't really that big of a deal. There's kind of a lot of it recorded in scripture, and, and this stands as a really stark contrast to the emphasis on the purity of women to keep the family line clear. All of this comes together and creates a dynamic during sex where men were actors with agency and women were the object of men's actions. They were property. The implication of that was that the man was acting like a man that is with power and intention and agency, and the woman was acting like an object, his property to be used for procreative purposes. Now personally, that is all the <laughs> info that I need to know that the biblical context is like maybe, you know, and these laws that are like really clearly connected um, to that biblical context, maybe not the place to begin to build a good sexual ethic or a good ethic of marriage and romantic relationships. Now, that's not to say that there isn't plenty in the Bible that can inform our sexual and romantic ethics. There are endless teachings about love and mutuality, family building and faithfulness. The Song of Songs actually also provides a radical, beautiful portrayal of sex among two adults whose pleasure and connection and personhood are clearly equally valued. It's really good. It's like, it's super good. But that's not the framework, that's not the emphasis that we see at work in the clobber verses. Because the clobber verses are much more linked than other parts of scripture to the, the norms of their cultural location around that particular manifestation of, of misogyny and, and kind of proprietary relationships in sex and marriage. So... To sum up, the scriptures are broad and vast and beautiful, 
and contain great ethics and really awesome erotica that like values all the agency of sexual participants, but it also contains some parts of law um, and some other, some of the letters of Paul that are like much more closely related to a pretty gross understanding of, um, of sex and marriage and misogyny that we have, um, we have shifted far away from for very good reasons. So, acknowledging all of that, there are scholars that alongside those arguments about these texts actually being about sexual abuse of children will also note that anything that is referring to what is natural is probably talking about that natural understanding of the hierarchy of agency in sex and marriage uh, among men and women. And so basically what they're saying is the understanding of a man being a full human being and exerting his agency on a woman as a sexual object meant that if two men were to have sex, one of them would have to be the woman and that that would be degrading. So when it says, you shall not, you, that is men, of course, because only men are being spoken to here, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. It's saying, don't turn a man into a woman, because, woof, how degrading and horrible is that? So the Bible seems to have gotten things half right here, <laughs> uh, if we're understanding that interpretation correctly, that the, the objectification uh, of a human being for the sexual use of another is wrong. But the authors only see it as an abomination if it's a man being objectified. So that is another critique, scholarly critique of this, especially again when we get to those later passages from Paul that are talking about what is natural. But even the term abomination is a really complicated one. So let's talk about it for a minute. It's such an intense word that like we knew when we titled this series, Not Your Abomination, that that word abomination was really gonna catch the eye. And a lot of us have had that word hurled at us, have um, been abused by it. But let's really get into what abomination means. It seems like a really bad thing. But again, we're talking about different associations that we have with words depending on context. Um, so just because we have associations in one language doesn't mean that that's actually what, what it meant when it was originated. So I'm going to give you a list of things that are abominations. Eating shellfish. Eating meat after the third day. Having sex while one partner is menstruating. Sacrificing a child to the god Molech. Worshipping other gods. Having dishonest weights and measures. It's a pretty broad list. Like, Maybe let's not compare child sac sacrifice to period sex. Um, there are a lot of different things going on here. And some of it is literally about cleanliness. So, for instance, shellfish are bottom feeders. And the Hebrew people decided as a culture that that was kind of gross. <laughs> and so they were like, we don't eat that. Ew. And similarly, blood 
is symbolic of a lot related to sacrifice and life. So there were a bunch of taboos about menstruation. But there are other themes that emerge as well. So yes, there is a law saying not to sacrifice children, which I think we can all get on board with. But the law actually seems equally concerned with the practice of child sacrifice as it is with whom the sacrifice was made to, Molech. There are lots of abominations about other people's worship. This is, again, where we get to temple prostitution. So temple prostitution was deeply exploitative, as we've already covered, but it also was in service of another god. And some of these abominations is about, like, it's an abomination when that other temple down the block makes money off of this sexual abusive sexual practice. And so, like, yes, it is concerned with the sexual abuse, but also with the fact that, like, it's about worshiping another god. And this community of Yahweh said, you want to be in? Don't worship other gods. Don't give your money to other temples, especially not to have sex with people who can't consent to it. And so you've got this complicated mixture of the Bible condemning abuse, but also just creating different cultural lines. And then on top of that, you have a bunch of laws that are about totally random other stuff. So don't mix wool and linen. Don't get tattoos. I find it particularly ironic that uh, a lot of the anti-queer evangelicals have found a way around laws that would prevent skinny jeans and tattoos, but still really lean hard on the idea of homosexuality as an abomination. But abomination and purity laws were mixed all the way up. It was about distinguishing God's people from other local religions and traditions. These laws say they have markings on their skin. You don't. They sacrifice their children to their gods. You don't. They have temple prostitution as part of their worship. You don't. This is about being a good team player. It's about wearing the right uniform, following the cultural norms. It's about being distinguishable from those other people who are different from us. And in this context, abomination doesn't necessarily mean sinful, even if some of the stuff that is named is. But you are not breaking God's heart when you go to Red Lobster. You are not, you're just not following the, the norms of ancient Israel, which felt really important back then. So a modern faithful interpretation of these purity laws is that we are called to be a set-apart people, but that we have been offered a different definition of that. In John 13, verse 35, Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So yeah, be set apart. Don't participate in the abuse of the world. And be set apart. Make it notable how much you love each other, so much so that it seems out of this world. These are the important interpretations of these scriptures and we can hold on to them and draw close to God. As promised, I'm going to run you through all five of these classic clobber verses and we're going to see how all of those, all that scholarship applies to each of them. So first we'll start with the two from Leviticus. Cameron? Leviticus 18, 22. 
Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And Leviticus 20, 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So the arguments we have for understanding these not as condemnations of queer sexuality, but as other important things, are number one, that the tradition has historically actually interpreted this as the abuse of young boys at the hands of adult men. We can all condemn child sexual abuse. Number two, this is a condemnation of the local Canaanite practice of temple prostitution, wherein a person who probably could not have consented earns money for the temple by having sex with anyone who will pay. It is also worship of a foreign god. And number three, these abominations are about cultural values as much as they are about sin. And so we can't understand them as a blanket condemnation so much as what sets us apart or what sets ancient Israel apart from other communities and practices. Next one. Romans 1. Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. So argument number one, this is the one where Paul made up that word because he was trying to describe something that he saw that was wrong, but the culture didn't have a word for it. It's notable that actually the culture around him in Greek and Latin had a number of words for consenting sexual acts between same-sex partners. So he must have been describing something else. Argument number two, the idea of natural intercourse was probably a reference to cultural understandings that women were objects of sex and it was unnatural to have a man be objectified or penetrated. This is not our moder modern understanding of healthy consenting sexual relationships and we've done one better than Paul by holding a standard that all parties have agency and value during sex. Argument number three for this passage is that Paul is not talking about adults. He's contrasting uh, with the Greco-Roman practice of pederasty, that's the word for it here, um, which is the culturally prevalent abuse of boys, usually aged 8 to 12. It's a condemnation of child abuse, not a commentary on adult sexuality. And it would have been incredibly important to name that and distinguish it from the early Christian community because it was extremely common in the ancient Greco-Roman world, um, usually because uh, adults would uh, offer up their children in order to increase their social standing. So it was a very abusive practice that was really common that uh, Paul is speaking against. Argument number four is really meta and really interesting. We haven't covered it anywhere else because it specifically applies to this passage. But the argument is that Paul is doing a big rhetorical thing here. He's borrowing language from other Jewish sources to set himself up for an argument that he's going to knock down later. 
So he's using existing fire and brimstone language that was common among Jewish people to condemn Gentiles. So he's not even quoting his own theology. He's not sourcing his own beliefs. He's just using language everyone would have recognized as a common uh, complaint about how the Gentiles were garbage just to knock it down later by saying, hey, we're all sinners. Get off your high horse. We need grace. And so he's not actually establishing a Christian ethic of sexuality with these verses. He's quoting other people and then saying that their argument was garbage because according to Paul, we all need grace. And, um, and the kind of self-righteous narrative that the Jewish folks had about Gentiles was harming the church's ability to bring Gentiles in and create a body of one people. This is a very meta, very nuanced argument, uh, but I think it's really interesting because it's actually a really common rhetorical device in the ancient world. Plato does the same thing, where if you were to excerpt some of what Socrates is saying and say, oh, this is what Socrates meant, you would miss the whole argument because Socrates is only saying that, so later he can say, how stupid is that? Next verse. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know what wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching. So first of all, I would like to note how interesting it is that all the slaveholders and slave traders slept on this verse for so long. But the arguments here for these last two verses are that the word translated in both places as sodomite is the same one that Paul made up. So it's probably, again, referring to pederasty or child abuse. This is a very specific practice of sexual exploitation of children that has no bearing on our understanding of adult sexuality. And number two, the grouping with uh, temple prostitutes is uh, taking us back to this idea that relationships that were not consenting and in service of worshiping another god were wrong. So it's putting it in this whole list of things that are wrong. But it's not practices that would have been contained within relationship. And in fact, most of the adult men who sexually abused those boys would have, it's, it's hard to speculate, but like would have functioned in the rest of their lives in a way that we would have deemed straight. Most of the folks who were engaging in sex at the temple in a way that exploited those people who were conscripted into that abuse would have operated in the rest of their life as straight people. So these are not acts that are about loving, romantic, consenting, faithful relationships between adults. These are all descriptions of abuse. All 
of the New Testament verses that we have here are contextualized within a culture of sexual violence and exploitation associated with other cultures and other religions where Paul and others are saying, not us. This is not part of God's design for us. And those folks who are doing that, along with all the other things that we don't do, it's bad. So there you have it, folks. All of the clobber verses, verse by verse by verse. Again, go back to those other resources if you want to go deeper. I hope that this has been helpful in contextualizing some of this for folks. But if you're feeling a little dissatisfied, it may be because verse hopping is just not a very fun thing to do. And it doesn't actually give you the breadth of the beauty of Scripture. It's hard to see some of the joy and beauty of the kingdom of God when you pull out these texts and have to look at them with a microscope. But they're not talking about the beauty of queerness. They're talking about the ugliness of sexual abuse and exploitation. And so we can praise God that contained within our scriptures is a condemnation of abuse. We get, got into this effort to um, engage with our God and, and find ways more deep into the scriptures. And so I pray that you can sit with these two Find a way to mend your heart from the wounds inflicted by modern abuses of scripture so that you can feel called home to God, God's word, and God's people. We'll be back next week with further work to mend that relationship and offer our hopes and fears and doubts to God and to one another. Will you pray with me to close out this time? God of the universe, your scriptures are complex. They are living. They are sharp as a sword. And we have dulled them, narrowed them, and laid our crap upon them. God, I pray that you would allow us to see your truth despite the error of our ways. That you would allow us to connect with the holy goodness of our tradition. That we would claim your word with boldness. And that we would see the truth contained within it so that we can distinguish it from the lies that have come in to hurt us. In your name we pray. Amen.